Welcome to Pridescape, the official podcast of Pride Northwest, home of the annual Portland Pride Waterfront Festival and Parade, and much more. Each month, we will be bringing you the latest Pride Northwest updates and important news and information affecting Oregon and Southwest Washington's LGBTQ community. To learn more about Pride Northwest, visit our website at pridenw.org. And now your host and executive director of Pride Northwest, Deborah Porta. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Pridescape, the official podcast of Pride Northwest. I'm your host, Deborah Porta. As folks may know, over the last number of years, Pride Northwest has been actively engaged in supporting our food and housing insecure community members, particularly since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. LGBTQ IA2S plus people are hugely overrepresented in the unhoused community. On average, anywhere from 19 to 29% of LGBTQ IA2S plus folks will experience houselessness in their lifetime, most often as an adult. Um, in all honesty, I know I had my own stint in that world before I moved to Oregon, um, living out of the back of my, my 65 Chevy Impala for about six months back in Dallas, Texas, when I was in my 20s. Contrary to the reputation that Portland has for being LGBTQIA2S plus supportive, right? The very real and often overlooked reality is that services for our people, much less culturally appropriate and specific services, shelters, housing, supplies, whatever the case may be, are so woefully lacking in Oregon, including the Portland metro region. This means that our people must rely on non-LGBTQ IA2S plus specific services where they may and often do face significant discrimination, homophobic activity, and so on uh, in, in attempting to access services and attempting to stay alive. Some existing services are, in all blunt honesty, working harder at providing culturally appropriate care and resources to our community than are others. Rosehaven Day Shelter and Community Center is one of those organizations in town that is actively doing the work to ensure that their services are accessible by and supportive of queer, cis, and trans women and gender nonconforming folks. I'm excited to have Rosehaven's Development Director, Liz Starkey, joining us today to talk about Rosehaven and especially the work they're doing to ensure that queer folks are welcome and affirmed there. Hi, Liz. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's start at the beginning. Tell us tell us a little bit about Rosehaven, some history, what you do, kind of like lay the groundwork there. Yeah, so Rosehaven is the only day shelter and community center in Portland, specifically for women, children, and people marginalized by their gender. So 25 years ago, actually 26 years ago now, um, our founding directors did a survey where they walked around downtown Portland and they interviewed women about what it is that they needed. Um, and overwhelmingly, the response was, we need a safe place to go during the day when the night shelters are closed, a safe place where we can bring our children and we don't have to worry about facing our abusers. Um, so fast forward to today, we realize that it's not only women that are marginalized by their gender. And so we expanded our mission 
to include everybody marginalized by their gender. So we now serve anybody who is trans or non-binary anywhere in that journey. Um, and that has really been a critical resource that was needed for the community. Um, so most of the night shelters, you know, all you can really do is sleep there. So the need for daytime services period is really critical, especially now as Oregon, well, the state of the city of Portland has passed what they're calling a daytime camping ban. Um, so they've essentially criminalized our houseless neighbors during the daytime hours. So between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., it's now illegal to, quote, camp on the streets of Portland, i.e. you're not allowed to stay in one place for any given amount of time with your belongings, um, which has, you know, made it even more difficult for our neighbors who are already struggling. And Rosehaven is one of the only places where a lot of our guests are even welcome to go um, during the day. So what we do is we offer kind of a one-stop shop where you can meet all of your basic needs and then connect and figure out that long-term healing. So for every single human that comes to Rosehaven, that's that journey to healing and recovery is going to look really, really different, right? Like we have some folks that may be staying on their sister's couch or sleeping mm -hmm. in a car or sleeping in a tent. Um, if you're lucky, you have a shelter bed somewhere. Um, but for more and more Oregonians, that means that they're living outside in cars or in tents. And so we're really bridging the gaps for those folks. One of the only places that they can go to meet their basic needs when, you know, the night shelters are full with wait lists. What does that mean for all the people that aren't lucky enough to get on that list? Well, they can come to Rosehaven. Um, and we also serve a lot of folks who have stable housing, but they're low income. And if they didn't get help from Rosehaven, they might not be able to keep that housing. So we provide, mm -hmm. you know, things like that you can't purchase with food stamps, like hygiene supplies, clothing, uh, holiday gifts for children, things like school supplies, all that stuff. And then we, we also have an on-site clinic and a mental health team. So we try to really offer holistic care and we start by meeting those basic needs first. It's that whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We can't talk to somebody about long-term change if they're hungry and they don't have shoes on. Right, um, right. But yeah, really what we're doing, and you touched on it earlier, is just creating community for a population that has been systematically marginalized. And so just having a place where folks can feel seen and heard and first and foremost feel safe is really the core of, of why we exist and, and why our services are so critical right now. Absolutely. Um, you kind of touched on this, um, but I want to go a little bit deeper. You know, Rosehaven wasn't founded as a quote unquote queer specific organization. Kind of, and again, you touched on this a little bit. You basically what's prompted the organization to to deeper dive into this a more culturally appropriate space and services for queer identified individuals. Yeah, I'm really I'm really glad that you're asking that question because it's you know, most of it comes from the fact that if you're on the ground doing the work, it's obvious that there is a huge critical need and that the intersection between your sexual or gender identity and poverty is huge. Mhm. Mm and so, you know, we were already serving folks and I feel like it just kind of in a lot of ways happened organically. Like 
we had a lot of trans women that were coming to us, at, you know, because they they knew that they would be safer in a women's center than they would be in a co-ed or certainly a male shelter. Right. And so for a long time, we were just kind of doing the work quietly, but not really talking about it. And so then it was like, okay, well, what about, you know, what about the women that don't necessarily have the tools to present their their gender identity so if you don't have access to a razor or you know fill in the blank that may be a really different journey for you in the way that you're accepted in female identified spaces so then we started talking about okay well we're not just serving trans women we're really serving anybody who's trans because we also had a lot of trans men that were coming and it was like okay well you know, it it doesn't make sense to us to not serve this person who was born with a, a female body when they've experienced discrimination their whole life. And now they're facing even more discrimination as a trans person. It didn't mm-hmm. make sense for us to stop serving those people. And so then it came to a point where it was like, okay, we have to make the commitment that we're serving anybody who's marginalized by their gender. And that is a really wide range of people. And so how can we ensure that it's still going to be a safe space for femmes and a safe space that is not inclusive of cisgender men? Um, And so we actually did a a process this year where we worked with a consulting company, um, Emily Evans Consulting, which they connected us with an amazing activist named Lucas Soto. Mm -hmm. And and they came in and they interviewed our guests and they asked them, what is it that you need? What do you think is lacking in the services here at Rose Haven? What What could we do to make you feel more welcome? And they also helped us really hone in our intake process because we're a really low barrier agency. We don't require ID or sobriety or anything like that to come in and get help. Um, And COVID made our jobs really difficult because we had to push the majority of our services outdoors for two years while we built our new home, which is the facility that we're currently in. But before 2022, we were in a church basement. It was cozy. (laughs) And um, we were, you know, we couldn't socially distance in that space. Um, And I guess I should also say we were in a church basement, but we were not a religious organization. That was just where we could afford rent. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, We couldn't socially distance, you know, for for in a church basement. So we had to do in order to keep our guests safe, we had to do a lot of our work on the sidewalk for a couple of years. And when we were doing that, we realized A, there were so few other resources in the community that people just needed help. It didn't matter what their gender was. But we still recognized that our role in the community was to provide a safe space specifically for folks marginalized by their gender. And so we were really challenged during that time when people were really struggling that a lot of cis men were trying to access the space And, you know, it's basically like we have a big sign up that says, hey, this is where vulnerable women and people hang out. And so that was challenging for us. And so we realized that we had to do a better job of vetting folks before they were coming into the space to determine that they were actually going to be successful um, and, you know, that they were actually eligible for our services. And so that has been an overhaul that we did just in this past year, because we were already, like I said, just kind of doing the work. And a lot of it was based off of gut feeling, but that's not fair, right? You can't base somebody's gender identity based off of the way they look. And you can't base it, 
you know, off of anything other than, you know, what is, what is their, what is their reality? What is their gender expression? And so figuring that out and where they are in that journey requires a series of questions. And, you know, it definitely, it's not easy work trying to, trying to gatekeep. Nobody wants to do that, but I will advocate until I completely run out of air for the need for culturally specific services. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how, how we ended up here. And I think also as Oregon, you know, has become kind of a, a refuge for a lot of folks around the country as yep. there's more and more legislation passed that is making this one of the only places where people can come for gender affirming care. We know we're going to see even more trans and non-binary people experiencing homelessness and poverty in Oregon. So we're going to continue to do the work and be an inclusive space, but we can't be the only space. We definitely need more centers, more day shelters, and more spaces specifically for our queer population because um, it's just there's just a critical shortage. Oh, absolutely. That is, um, I mean, this is a big part of of how we ended up having our conversations to begin with when we met. You kind of sort of answered my next question. In terms of what what uh, may you know what steps have you taken and are taking to to better serve and well serve uh, trans and gender nonconforming folks? You worked with Lucas. Where I'm familiar with Lucas's work. Lucas is a member of the uh, LGBTQIA2S plus housing collaborative that Pride Northwest is also part of. Um, and it sounds like that work has made a significant difference. You've mentioned some of the work that you've done that you've done so far in terms of addressing, building, and creating culturally appropriate space, culturally appropriate care uh, and services. What um what do you see as the next Rosehaven's next step in that? I know that you and I have had some conversations about, you know, maybe specific hours. Um, bringing other partners into the space, you know, like Equi or something. What would you like to see in in Rosehaven's journey uh, in terms of of continuing to build the the culturally appropriate environment that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think right now the the bulk of the work and the core of the work that we need to do is going to be around educating our community. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, particularly the cis women who are coming to Rosehaven, you know, for a refuge from men that are triggered when they see people that they perceive as male bodied. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing day to day is connecting with our guests and letting them know, hey, every single person that comes here belongs here. Every single person that comes here went through the same intake that you did. And we know, you know, that that person belongs here because there was definitely a lot of concern especially for our mask presenting guests um you know that it was you know it is it has traditionally been a femme centered space mm -hmm. and so we have a lot of work to do i think to educate our community about what is going on in you know just what's going on what is the landscape like out there for queer folks what is, what are the, you know, what are, what are some of the facts about lethality in the community? And what does that really mean? Like, cause I think for some of our guests, especially, you know, I mean, 
poverty and education are so closely linked, right? And so yeah. for many of our guests, they just don't have access to the information that might change their mind or might make them a little bit more accepting and understanding. And so we realize that that's probably where the core of the work has to be done. Um, but I think that another big part of it is also just doing that education through day-to-day -day activities. So for example, we host a pride party every year at Rosehaven where we celebrate our guests and we, you know, put out some information talking about why is pride important? What does pride mean? And we just, you know, we have a, we have a celebration and just giving people that sense of community is really important, but also giving people that visibility, as you know, is hugely important. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, we're inviting community partners on site to do outreach. Um, and that has been hugely helpful. Um, we do a resource fair every year where, you know, partners like Equi and CAP come on site and they're doing work directly with our guests. Um, and then you touched on this a little bit, but, you know, since we've moved into our new facility, the one thing that we have is space. And so we are a day program and the, we are limited by our budget and our ability to raise funds to how many hours that we can be open. And so currently we have to do all of our direct service work and all of our administrative work with one set of staff, you know, in an eight hour workday. Yeah. And so we're limited. We we're not in a position where we can expand our hours right now, but what we can do is offer our space to other programs to use it. And so, for example, NUNM has been coming on site for years and they transform all Rosehaven into a naturopathic clinic every Wednesday night. And so we've been chatting with community partners that are doing queer specific services to say, hey, what if you were to come on site to Rosehaven, you know, say one or two nights a week or however much your capacity was for and have hours that are specific for our trans community, for our mask presenting guests, for the folks that have been marginalized within the community for marginalized people. Right. There are people that are on the margins of the marginalized, right? And so mm -hmm. how can we create more space that's intentional for them so that they can feel seen and heard and have some more culturally specific services? And so I'm hoping that we'll be able to get something like that going. I know that Lucas said there were a few grants out there um, that could possibly make that happen. Um, and then just, you know, continuing to have conversations. It's really important to us that we show up and have a presence at Pride every year because we probably see it's it's a pretty fair mix of guests, donors, volunteers coming to that space. And we see a lot of people coming out in that space. And so it's really important for us to be there offering resources so that people know what we do, what how we can help. If they want to help, they can get involved. And I think just continuing to talk to the community and ask them, what is it that you need? Um, you know, I've definitely in the past surveys that we've done, there's been a huge ask for more mental health services. And so mm -hmm. we've added a mental health team, you know, more medical services because the homeless population gets terrible treatment when they go to a traditional health care setting generally. Yeah. yeah. Add being queer on top of that, you're mm -hmm. dealing with a double whammy. So a lot of our guests only really feel safe accessing medical care at our clinic or at a place you know, like Quest, where they're going to be able to get culturally specific care. So I think that, you know, when, when we're doing this work, we always have to turn to our guests and ask them, what is it that they need? It's not up to me to decide what's best for them. And I think that's a lot of what Rosehaven's whole model is, is we're going to meet you where you're at. 
And we want to base our services off of our guests' self-defined needs. We don't have an agenda for anybody that walks into our doors other than what are the goals that you want to achieve today? And if that's just getting something to eat and taking a shower and getting clean clothes, we got you. If that's talking to a social worker about, you know, finding long-term housing or getting back into school or finding a job, we can help with that too. Um, so it's, as I said, it's a really wide range of needs that we're seeing from our guests. But I think that probably, you know, the biggest, the biggest challenge and where we have the most work to do is just uplifting and educating the entire community about the importance of us being inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, I, one of the things that, that I, you know, we volunteered there the other day and, and one of the things that I heard consistently and still hear is, is this approach of, of respect and dignity and sort of humanness. And one of the, one of the biggest, uh, and I can't say it's surprising, but it still surprised me in the last several years, how easily othered and dehumanized our unhoused community folks really are. And, you know, you hear about it and people talk about it, but, but I don't think most folks really understand how prevalent that attitude is. How yeah, I had a lady, like the first week I started working at Rosehaven, she said something to me that I never forgot. It kind of sums that up. And she said, when you're out there, you feel like you are invisible and on display at the same time, mm -hmm. all the time. And I never forgot that. And I think that that's guided the work for me in so many ways, because you have to realize like what it feels like to be constantly exposed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, just, I think about, um, there was once uh, we were out um, like handing out supplies to folks who were, who were camping out on the sidewalk over in inner Southeast. And this guy comes out of his house and literally starts chasing us down the street because he was so mad that we were quote enabling these people and and I but I I couldn't I couldn't believe that he was so mad that I had handed somebody like a, a, some gloves or something right yeah. and and how passionate he got about being so mad to literally chase me down the street. Um, you know, talking to other folks of you know, being targeted with firecrackers and, and explosives and and just all these different, like how easy I'm rambling a little bit right now, I know, but it's but I think people really need to understand what folks living outside are dealing with simply because they're outside. And how you're right. It is this don't see, don't see, invisible, ignore, all at the same time as literally completely and utterly exposed all the time. And uh and what that does to to your internal, to your self-esteem, to your self of control, sense of control, all of those things. 
and and this is such a this topic this is going to go into my next question this the topic of our housing crisis as they call it is such front page news but there's next to no real conversation about the people right about the experiences of our folks in navigating all of this other than it's out of control and it makes the streets ugly right i have friends who's i even i have friends who use that language and i'm like y'all um yeah so it's just it's just such a it's 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 the thing that i think our entire community just simply needs to pay attention to because we are so impacted by this it's so true and as you said there's a huge intersection right so like oftentimes queer kids get disowned and have to go out into the world alone at a young age you know women are dealing with this too i mean you add the lens of patriarchy Mm-hmm. to that issue that you're already talking about that homeless men are facing this but if you are a homeless trans person or a homeless woman you're even more on display and you know e- people feel even more entitled to judge you based off of your appearance and it's just it's hard and you know i think for our folks that are living outside you also have to look at at what that exposure really means in the context of climate change like these folks mm-hmm. were outside during the wildfires when the air wasn't safe to breathe when police were setting off gas every single night downtown there were people that lived downtown and had to breathe that and you know the proud boys that were coming into town to throw fuel on the fire at those protests I heard stories of them driving around in pickup trucks and just slashing people's tents, you know, as they were driving around just for fun, or as you said, throwing firecrackers into tents just because they think it's funny. And, you know, these are human beings that we're talking about that have no place else to go. And that it's, it is a myth that poverty is a choice, you know, poverty is not a choice. And I think that there's this narrative that people People are either homeless because of a result of poor choices or that they choose to be homeless. And, you know, I've been working at Rosehaven 10 years and I have never met one person, not one person who chose to live in poverty. (laughs) You know, it's just it's just such an interesting, interesting narrative. But I think that it all goes back to its compassion fatigue. And a lot of it is intentional, right? There's an intentional narrative by the powers that be to dehumanize our neighbors. Because if we give the majority of the people who the majority of the people are at or below the poverty line, if we give them the power of humanity and we give them a voice, and if their voice means the same as Ted Wheeler or Jeff Bezos' voice, they're going to have a problem, (laughs) So I think if we realize that that narrative is really intentional, I think probably the most powerful thing we can do is to amplify the voices of the folks who've been silenced and to, you know, just amplify, amplify their voices, but also their humanity and just give, give them a little bit of dignity, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what we, we kind of roll, we're really good at rolling into the next question. Um, where in terms of of where we are now uh in the and right now we're looking looked i'm talking like the the larger landscape of 
of houselessness in our community. Where where do you think we are now, and what what are the needs at the top of the list? Oh gosh, you know, is there another hour we're gonna meet? <laughs> yeah, we I. You know, I guess the the long story short is that there's no there's no magic bullet, right? Like it is such a multifaceted, complex issue that's going to need so many things to change. So we can talk about affordable housing. We have to talk about affordable health care because that's the number one reason that Americans are in debt and their houses are going into foreclosure. Mm-hmm. You know, affordable child care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so huge. it's huge. And then, you know, and then these are like, long-term big issues but then you know there's also a critical shortage of supportive housing services and shelter beds so it's like we need more shelter beds we need more long-term affordable housing we need wraparound care for folks that aren't going to be successful in congregate settings because we also have a whole portion of the the houseless population that has been so traumatized that they're not going to be successful in a shelter or a room with a hundred other people So there are some folks that need really serious mental health care. And we haven't had any of that since the Reagan years when it all got axed. So, you know, it's definitely a complex issue. I think that really right now we need to focus on the daytime, the daytime camping ban and where people are going during the day. I think that that has only now become a conversation because of this ban and because that's when people are out and about and it's visible but for a long time, people were only talking about, well, where do people go at night yeah. and where people sleep? You know, when you're sleeping, those are not the hours when you're putting the pieces back together and rebuilding your life. That's just meeting the basic need of having a safe place to sleep. Um, yeah, yeah, that's and true. And so it's, you know, and I think that housing first too, it's a great tagline. It's a great idea, but it it ended up, a lot of people took it really literally. And so for a long time, the only funding opportunities we were seeing or the only thing that anybody wanted to talk about was affordable housing. Well, I can tell you there's a lot of folks that are simply not ready to just live alone in an empty apartment. If you've been living in a tent for five, six years, and then all of a sudden you hand somebody house keys, that's a big adjustment. That's going to take some supportive services. We tell people, you know, just try to go in for an hour a day, leave the windows open, leave, you know, do whatever you can to to adjust to being indoors because it's a huge adjustment for folks and it's traumatic. And people have a lot of concerns about surveillance. I mean, imagine you've been living outside and then you're going into a state-funded apartment, which oftentimes those home forward buildings are not the nicest places. Um, So it's it's not like it's just an easy transition and once people get housing, that's the answer. It solves a lot of problems, but that holistic, I think that our healthcare needs to be a huge part of this conversation too because even if we have affordable health care if it's not accessible what good does it do so we need affordable and accessible health care and we need culturally specific services so you know i wish that there was an easier answer but i think that the probably the most important thing we can do is to collaborate as of you know the more organizations that are collaborating and trying to offer as much as they can on site or in one place is going to help with that accessibility piece at least. And so that's why for us, we're trying to bring on as many 
other agencies as we can to Rosehaven to do their outreach because people are already coming there to meet their basic needs and take a shower and get something to eat. And so we've already built that trust so that we're going to have way more success if you have a case manager come in and talk to somebody at Rosehaven versus me handing them a bus ticket and a referral to an office on the other side of town to go tell their story again. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think the more that we can collaborate and have um, and work with each other, because it is a complex issue, you know, and so that's why I think that that referral network that our advocates have. So a part of our programs is these one-on-one meetings with social workers, which we call advocates. And, you know, that's an opportunity for people to come in and say specifically what it is that they're going through. What are the specific barriers that they see in the goals that they have? And so for some folks, that's where am I going to sleep tonight? For other folks, that might be completely different. That might be, you know, I need want to get back into school or I need help applying for jobs. But it's important for those advocates to have a referral network to be able to call upon where they can say, oh, okay, I know Susie over at Greater Good Northwest and she's got an open shelter bed. Let me call over there. But what we're seeing is a degradation in the social service system because it's high trauma work with high burnout. And we're seeing turnover across the industry because it just doesn't pay, right? Like social workers, you have to go to, you have to go to school to get a master's degree in social work to come out and get a $45,000 a year job. So many of the people that are working in the industry are also in need of the services. And mm-hmm. so that's something that we're trying to lean into really changing as well. Um, we just got back from the national, it was the first ever national women's shelter network conference in Miami. And they invited 170 uh, nonprofits specifically working with women and children to come together and talk, you know, share resources and talk strategically. And, you know, just having the collective, just the power of a collective is so powerful because since joining that network, we've now been invited to DC and had a meeting with the Department of Justice, HUD, and um, the Department of Labor. Things are happening as a collective, but we've also been able to share our resources. So we had people looking to us saying, wow, you changed your mission to include trans and non-binary folks. How did you do that? How can we do it? And so we've been sharing that process. Um, And it was interesting because there was only one other nonprofit that was from Denver at that conference that was also really leaning into, you know, serving our trans and non-binary guests. So it's like you start, you starting to see the flame happening and that just, you know, just working as a collective is so important. Um, And so advocating for higher wages is what I was getting to is also really important. Um, And at that conference, there was a woman who's the head of the YWCA nationally, Mm -hmm. and they're advocating at the national level that there should be a minimum wage of $25 an hour. And I think that that would make a huge difference here in Portland as well, because it goes back to that referral network, right? Like if there's, if there's constant turnover at every single one of these agencies in Portland, then that makes it so much more difficult for the people trying to get help. Not only do they have to tell their story over and over and over again, but we may give them a referral to somebody and then they move on and then their whole caseload gets delayed. And so there's really, that's a really big part of the structural failure that we're seeing. Um, I always say, if we want kids to grow up to like look up and say hey I want to grow up to be a social worker and I want to change the world if we realize that this is a problem in our society we're going to need 
a workforce and people to want to do that work. We can't continue to see all of the best minds go to finance or whatever that is. And so I think that we as a culture have to lean into that this is a problem that we want to solve and that we want to invest in and pay people to do the work if we want to see this problem solved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you remind me of, you know, I've had a couple of conversations with a friend of mine who, you know, uh, a lot of community health workers and um, just the, the weight that sits on them because they're ready to do the work and and they don't have anywhere to send clients to. They don't have a place to refer them to for X, Y, Z. Because, because as you say, either things have changed, people have changed, positions have come and gone, services have come and gone. The network isn't there. You know, we, this, I've, and I've seen, doesn't seem to matter where I'm at in this, in this town, that we're really, really good at everything being siloed. Yeah. And, and then no one even knows exactly what's happening or what even is possible, right? No one knows what's out there because we literally don't talk to each other. Um, just the power of that, of that collaboration and that being in communication together, like you say, you, you're already seeing progress and, you know, don't everybody get excited. This isn't progress that'll happen next year, long-term progress. <laughs> But it's the same thing here, we, you know, with the housing collaborative, we're already seeing because we've been talking to each other and then talking to others and talking to policymakers and decision makers, things start moving and they move fairly slowly, but they don't ever start moving if we don't talk to each other. Um, I think that's, I think that's a huge takeaway because for some reason, we're just really scared to do that sometimes. Well, how it's go back to uh go back to the basics if if folks want to find out more about Rosehaven about the work that you're doing not to mention support the work that you're doing where do they go to do that so yes we desperately need your help um we do not get any government funding and we're entirely you know a grassroots organization so we rely on folks like you to to help us do this work. Um, so there's a few ways you can help. You can go to rosehaven.org. Um, you can make a donation there. You can also sign up to be a volunteer there. We had about 710 volunteers last year, and that's what helps keep us going as well. Um, and then follow us on Instagram. It's rosehavenpdx. Um, as I said, we're super grassroots. So if I run out of underwear, I will post a picture on there of the empty drawer. It is it is that transparent. So um, that's a really great way to keep tabs on what we're doing. And we also have a community calendar on our website. So if you need help or you want to help, you can go to rosehaven.org. Very cool. Well, Thank you again, Liz, for joining us. Um, I look forward to uh, to seeing what it is that we can do together. And um, super appreciate Rosehaven, the work that you do and uh, and the work to come. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pridescape, the official podcast of Pride Northwest with executive director, podcast producer, and host, Deborah Porta. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on what you heard here today and to support the work of Pride Northwest, go to pridenw.org.